Hello, I'm Bruce Celery. This is Moolah La, Money Made Simple. Your credit card bill, ugh, it can be scary to open and a big struggle to repay. There is a different way to help consumers reduce credit card debt that we haven't talked about before. It's called repayment by purchase. Grant Donnelly, a professor at Ohio State University, co-authored a paper exploring this method. He'll be here to talk about it. Then kinless seniors. This phrase refers to a growing number of Canadians who do not have any immediate family around as they age. So what can they do about the unique challenges they face when it comes to managing their money? Laura Tamblin Watts, founder and CEO of CanAge, is here to share her insight. And car accidents happen. Even if it's a minor one, it can have an impact on your insurance rate. Morgan Roberts is the insurance sales director at ratehub.ca. She's here to tell you what you should do in case you're in this unfortunate situation, what to claim, what not to claim. Does your financial advisor always have a positive outlook on the market? They may have something called optimism bias. This is a topic that John DeGuy explains in his book called Bullshift, how optimism bias can threaten your finances. We'll be here to take us through it. Plus, a look at kids and digital currency. Some parents are using that as a form of allowance uh, with some trade-offs. Karen Holland from GiftingSense.org is here to share how to engage kids about thinking before they buy. This is Moolah La, Money Made Simple, brought to you in part by Credit Canada, the first and longest standing nonprofit credit counseling agency in the country. Let's get started. We talk a lot about bias these days, usually related to topics like diversity and inclusion or hiring, for example. But the term is also relevant when it comes to investing. Portfolio manager and author John DeGuy explores this idea of bias in his book, Bullshift, How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finances. He joins us now to talk more about it. Hello there. Hi, Bruce. This is a provocative title, Bullshift. Tell me more about this newly invented word. Is this a reference to the bull market or being bullish? What's it mean? Uh, I, well, first off, I don't know what you're talking about, about it being provocative. It's, <laughs> it's you. Everything that comes out of your mouth is provocative. <laughs> the, uh, the idea is that it's a portmanteau. It's a made-up word of uh, two parts, bull and shift. Bull is basically, uh, your your listeners would know, a bull market is when people are optimistic about things and and when markets are doing well and going up. Uh, shift is is just um, anything that uh, changes its position. So what, what we're talking about here is how the financial services industry works and a lot of what is involved in the way people engage in finance, personal finance, uh, involves the shifting of their perspective into being more bullish than it otherwise might be. How do you define optimism bias? Ha. Optimism bias is is the first off. It's a very good thing. It's a it's it's nineteen times out of twenty. Nineteen uh, optimism bias is a good thing, and it's probably the best bias to have. But the definition would be uh, taking a look at situations and assuming the outcome will be fine and that everything will work out, irrespective of what the circumstances actually are. Just just the glass is always half full, no matter what. Did you just 
like read my biography right there. It is my defining characteristic, my right. unrelenting, sometimes diluted optimism. I'm glad to hear you say it works 19 times out of 20. That's good. Sometimes it does not work when it comes to investing. Why not? So, so that's my point is, is it's, it's a, a really good thing. But what I'm concerned about is precisely that one time out of 20 when it becomes borderline delusional. And, and that's why it, it might not work. Uh, it's rare when it doesn't, because most of the time, um, the industry helps uh, clients skate through circumstances fairly uh, reasonably. Basically, if we have a situation like what we had with COVID in February, March of 2020, but going back even further, the global financial crisis and the tech bubble at the turn of the millennium, these are sort of I'm going to call them garden variety bear markets that tend to last two or three years, in the case, in the case of COVID, five weeks. Mm. Um, and and the optimism that's that's part and parcel with the way the industry approaches how to give advice to retail clients is usually beneficial because it helps them to stay the course and to get through things. The concern that I have is what if what if we have something that is completely unlike anything any of us have experienced in our lifetime. And I'm not saying it's going to happen. This is not a forecast. But my concern is that if we have something like that, um, we will be ill-equipped uh, as, a, as, a, as an investing class to deal with it uh, in, a, in a sort of meaningful and stoic, and I'm going to get through this kind of way because we've been sort of dealt this um, jingoism of, of it's going to be fine without really thinking about what might be required if it becomes more prolonged or more severe, more severe than anything we've experienced previously. I have been following your work for a long period of time, and you, uh, you really are a bright light in terms of providing new perspective on, uh, on topics of the day. How much of the book's thesis is current to your view of what we may see unfold in the decade ahead? And how much is your temperament? Because you really do have a different take, and I'm not going to call you a pessimist, but you have, no. for a no. long period of time, um, raised these concerns. Yeah, I, I I would consider myself an optimist, Bruce, and I, I only became concerned about um, market valuations somewhere around maybe about a month and a half or two months before we all heard the word COVID at the very, very end of 2019. I would say the book is about 50-50. I'm, I'm trying to make the book uh, an evergreen book. There's a full chapter on um, how people dealt with COVID from a public policy perspective and from an emotional, psychological perspective. So there's, I, I wanted the book to be current, but I also wanted it to be the sort of thing that can serve as a cautionary tale because I'm not predicting a drawdown necessarily. I think it's likely, but I'm not gonna go so far as to predict it. I'm gonna say that it seems to me as a layperson, you know, I don't wanna forecast. I'm, so I'm not forecasting, but I think it's likely. But at any rate, even if it doesn't happen in 2023, I'm quite certain it will happen at some point. And my concern is that whenever it happens, whatever it looks like, people will be blindsided because they'll, they'll say they never saw it coming when they should have known better. Hmm. Most personal finance books are targeted to individuals and many take individuals to task for actions they, they could or should take. You take on financial advisors. Why? Well, because I want the industry to be better, but I but I really want to be careful that I don't take on financial advisors to be critical of them in terms of their motive. Hmm. 
uh, a lot of bias is unconscious. A lot of yes. people do things because that's the way things have always been done. And that's a tricky problem because I don't want to come across as a crank, um, but I do want to make things better. And it's difficult to make things better when the things that you're trying to improve upon are not even being recognized as deficiencies by the people who need to change. Right. And so that it's a unique problem. I'm not casting aspersions on advisors. I'm saying, I'm very clear, I must say it 20 times in the book, everyone's human. All humans have yeah. uh, a tendency toward bias. So this is not to take a shot at advisors. It just so happens that financial advisors give advice to retail clients. And since mm -hmm. advisors are as biased as anyone else, there's a concern that the, the bias might be creeping into the advice and, and the people that are getting the advice not might not recognize that they're getting biased advice, albeit well-intended. And then we have all these different unintended consequences that, that fall out of that. And, and the nuance does come through in the book, for sure. Thank you. You have a whole chapter called What Needs to Change. What are the top three, would you say? Oh, top three boy. things that need to change. I know. Uh, that's you're putting me on a spot, Bruce. I, I, I would say the first thing is uh, a, a real commitment to self-awareness. As I say, you can't. It's it's sort of like if you go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, the first thing you have to say is, you know, my name is John and I'm an alcoholic. You need the people that are uh, culpable, even if they're not, even if they're not aware of their culpability, to engage in some degree of self-reflection to try to make things better. You can't improve yourself if you're not aware of your own deficiencies. So that's number one. Uh, number two, I think we need more of a commitment to education in general, because I think there's a lot of uh, things that are presumed to be true that are not demonstrated to be true. And as long as wives' tales are part and parcel with the advice people get, uh, there's, a, there's a challenge there. And I think thirdly, and perhaps maybe even maybe even more important than the other two we need to better do a better job of teaching people not just advisors but also retail investors uh, uh, about behavioral economics because right now most people go about their business using traditional uh, economics where you you think about supply and demand and everything is 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 quantifiable and rational but in actual fact a lot of things are emotional and psychological and we don't give that enough consideration. And I think once we start thinking about things as the world actually is, as opposed to the way economists and professors think it ought to be, mm -hmm. we'll be better off in terms of making meaningful decisions. And you really do lay out a great uh, foundation there in terms of uh, framing behavioral economics and providing lots of really helpful definitions and applications in the real world. So that's super helpful. Great. One last question before we go here. How do you layer in age and stage? And I ask because for a 27-year-old investor, no matter what, the cataclysmic uh, event on the stock market could be, by the time they would need to be drawing down funds held in equities for retirement, it's going to be, you know, call it 40 years. So as bad as it may be, they have all the time, not all the time, literally, but almost all the time in the world to recover from that. So can you afford to be completely diluted in your optimism at 27, <laughs> tempered uh, in your 50s, and a pessimist in your 70s? I, I, I don't want people to be a pessimist ever at any age. Uh, I always want people to be a realist because I think that's, you know, a, a, an optimistic realist would be sort of the best way that I would want to put it. You know, be, uh, uh, be optimistic is the adjective and realist is the noun. I, I think people should be realists more than anything else. 
In terms of age and stage, I, I don't know that there's a single number that I would uh, use. Obviously, the older you get, the more you need to be, uh, the more you need to guard against uh, optimism bias because the greater the consequences if you are not guarding against it. One example I would use is um, uh, the Nikkei 225, uh, the Japanese major stock market, which was the second stock market in the world at one point, in 1989 hit its all-time high, and it's still, still, hasn't gotten back to that level. So if you're a middle-aged, uh, a 50-year-old in Osaka and you've got your life savings tied up in a diversified portfolio, but mostly in Japanese stocks, if that person today uh, who had that money at age 50 in 1989 would either be A, dead, mm. or B, uh, in their 80s, and still not back to where they were in terms of the uh, the stock market. So the point that I want to to make to your listeners is that We've been a bit sort of spoiled here in uh, in Western society because things have gone mostly up and we've had a 40 year long bull market in bonds because of interest rates coming down for the past while. And in this case, the past while is probably all, almost all of your listeners entire investing mm -hmm. lifetime. Mm -hmm. And that's that's ending. And as we come to terms with that, we need to be careful that a lot of people sort of do the uh, the recency bias. They'll say, well, uh, I never had that problem in the past, so I shouldn't expect it to be a problem in the future. But in right. fact, the, the 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 near future may not represent or or look at all like the the recent past whatsoever, and that's dangerous. And the older you are, the more that's a problem. The book is called Bullshift: How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finances. The author, John Degui. Thank you for joining us today. It's been my pleasure, Bruce. Thank you. You're listening to Moolah Law, Money Made Simple with Bruce Sellery on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. As an adult of a certain age, I have aging parents and I am so, so grateful to still have them alive and mostly well, but there's work involved in their care and I'm one of six kids. Luckily, we get along, we all do our part, and our parents are grateful, but not everyone has immediate family around them or any family, and that can be lonely, it can make care difficult, but it can also be a real challenge when it comes to tasks like managing personal finances. So. What can Canadians do if they are aging alone or if they're so-called so kinless? For more on this, we're joined by Laura Tamblin-Watts. She is the founder and CEO of CanAge, Canada's national senior advocacy organization. Hello there. Hello. I don't like the term, but I think we should define it. What does it mean to be a kinless senior? I don't even know why I don't like it. It just sounds... Ugh. I don't really like it either. But when we're talking about a kinless senior, we're talking about somebody who really has nobody in the world, no relationships. And that's maybe why I don't like the idea of kin, because really now we always think of friendships as well. So I think of it as solo seniors, or sometimes we talk about elder orphans. 
Right, right. And there can be so many different circumstances that those folks find themselves in because you could be someone without any family, but you've got this amazing cohort of people who are 10 years your junior who have totally got it all handled. And you could be um, someone who does not. Still, there are challenges for folks. Can you give us some examples for what Kinless seniors may face when it comes to their finances? We still have very traditional ideas of the family, and even though, of course, in many other ways, we have more expansive ideas. When it comes to things like money, we go back to 18th and 19th century ideas. Hmm. And there is a sense that if you can't pay for things, your kids should pay for. And actually, to be fair, that is what happens with a lot of older people. If they can't afford things, often family kick in. If you're also trying to think ahead and make decisions for who you would appoint as an attorney or power of attorney, if you can no longer make a financial decision yourself, again, typically we usually pick family, sometimes friends. But if you don't have anybody, it can be very difficult and people don't know what options they have. Let's talk about some of those options. So power of attorney, uh, there are two types, one for personal care for health stuff, the other for financial matters. What do they do on the financial front if they don't have someone to name? The only real good news on this is that you can pay for a trust company. So if you think about a large financial institution, there's usually a trust company wing about it. Mm. And you can have that organization or company make your financial decisions. Most people don't do that. In fact, it's quite rare. Overwhelmingly, it's family or possibly friends. But if you don't have anyone close to you, it can be very, very difficult to figure out how decisions are going to be made financially. In the U.S., there is something called a daily money manager. It's got some accreditation and it's, you know, basically a person who can do everyday banking and ensure that your cell phone bill gets paid, that sort of thing. Who takes, who can take on those sorts of tasks here in Canada? It's not a family member. So first, it's harder to do in Canada than the U.S. because we don't really have that daily money manager. If you find somebody who's willing to do it, you can, and you're mentally capable of being able to do so, I should make that point, you can appoint them to be your power of attorney for property, and they are going to stand into your shoes. But lots of people don't want to do that, or you've got nobody to do it at all. If you only have a government pension, and so this is for uh, the proportion of people who are quite low income, if you only have a government pension, you can arrange that the government pension go directly to pay some of your bills. But again, that's rarely done. Mm. Otherwise, you're pretty much stuck. Some people will make decisions, which I don't love, to put things into joint account. That, however, transfers ownership so it's not just someone being able to pay your bills. They actually own the money too. Right. My mom is in assisted care. She's, you know, stable. Uh, she has Parkinson's though, and is dealing with, you know, how that, those chapters are, are, are lining up for her. She would not be able to manage her money. What steps would you advise those 
air quotes, kinless seniors to take while they have their cognitive ability and whether they've got a diagnosis like Parkinson's, you know, or Alzheimer's or any of the many things that could lead to cognitive decline or whether they're perfectly healthy, like got all their marbles, they're rocking and rolling. So there's two kinds of folks here. There's the folks who don't have any close relationships at all, mm-hmm. okay? So it's not that they just don't have any family. They actually just don't have anybody at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. And for those people, I do think exploring having a trust company make the decisions for you is a really good idea. The good news is you, it doesn't cost any more than if it was having somebody else be your attorney because the fee is set by the legislation. And it's also good for people who don't want to think about trying to choose somebody and, you know, whether or not they may be overly tempted to do something with your money. It's a safe, it's a safe bet to do. For the people who have some relationships, but they're not ones that are ideal, you can appoint an attorney, pursue it to a power of attorney while you're still mentally capable. And you could have a monitor. Again, this is getting complicated and most mm. people don't do it. So you can have somebody else oversee keeping an eye on it. But this is a rarity. It would seem like there is a higher level of risk of fraud for someone who doesn't have people around them insofar as like, you know, people looking at bank statements and looking at email and those, those sorts of things. What are the watchouts for the seniors themselves to reduce the risk of fraud? We have a couple of archetypes. And the reason why they're archetypes is because they're so common. So if you are a kinless person or you're a solo senior and you get what I call the new best friend. So this is somebody who's identified you. Maybe they've met you at a faith community or just you know seen you struggling and they've helped themselves to your life so they may end up giving you help around the house and then end up maybe moving into your house and then they will try to get you to sign a power of attorney it's very Mm -hmm. very common Mm -hmm. so watch out for the new best friend watch out for somebody who is helping you with passwords because for many people or particularly older people who are not as comfortable with internet banking and and other types of cards and so forth. Having somebody with your passports or access to your cards and, uh, and they don't show you things, that should be a red flag. And last, if you are finding that somebody is interrupting the flow of information between you and somebody who you'd be talking to, an investment advisor, a bank, something like that, be really cautious. Very, very helpful perspective, Laura. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Laura Tamlin Watts is the founder and CEO of CanAge, Canada's national senior advocacy organization. And she was here to talk about some of the financial implications of being a, quote, kinless senior. Coming up next on Moolala, paying your kids in Robux. Karen Holland from GiftingSense.org shares her thoughts on digital currency when it comes to allowance for your kids. And later, marketing professor Grant Donnelly tells us about a new way to help reduce credit card debt. It's called repayment by purchase. And don't forget, we have a newsletter. Sign up to stay up to date on all the fun things I've done on this show, plus other stuff too, CBC Radio, CityLine, BNN Bloomberg. Just head on over to moolala.ca, pop in your 
email address. And do not worry, we will not give it to anyone else. You're listening to Moolala, Money Made Simple, with Bruce Sellery on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. Welcome back. Moolala, Money Made Simple is brought to you in part by Credit Canada. I am the CEO of the organization, and we are Canada's longest standing nonprofit credit counseling agency. Our mission is to help people get out of debt so they can get back into life. Listen, debt is a brutal reality for millions of Canadians. It starts to pile on for lots and lots of different reasons, job loss, divorce, illness, bad luck, you name it. Our accredited credit counselors are available to help you understand your current financial situation and take you through all your options on how to move forward. And there really are options out there. So go to creditcanada.com. We are nonprofit, as I said, the counseling is free and judgment free. If you have young people in your life, you have likely heard of something called Roblox. It's an online gaming platform that many kids are spending a lot of their time on. This platform, it does a bunch of things, but one of the things, it lets you buy Robux, which is a digital currency that allows you to make in-game purchases. Now, parents, many of them are left wondering whether they should give their kids a traditional cash allowance like we've done for decades, or pay in virtual currency instead. If you choose the latter, how do you make sure your kids are still learning the value of money? Karen Holland has some opinions on this topic. She is the founder of Gifting Sense, an organization that teaches children how to think before they buy. She's in New York City. Hello there. Hi, Bruce. There was this article in the Wall Street Journal. What was the essence of the article? Well, the article's original headline was that kids don't want money anymore. Now, of course, this caught my attention <laughs> because that's not at all what I observe. And I've been volunteer teaching kids how to think before they buy for over seven years now. So I immediately wrote to Sarah Needleman, who is the article's author, and, and to her credit and the Wall Street Journal's credit, by about two o'clock that afternoon, they changed the headline to a much more representative kids don't want cash anymore. Right. So the good news is there's something to the whole see something, say something adage. You know, I mm. saw something that struck me as super misleading. I said something in a very respectful way and, and the author responded. So to me, this is society working. What did you take away from both the article and from what you see with young people in terms of this trend towards virtual currency? Well, more representative headline aside, the content of the piece is still troubling because what it really gives voice to is that children are savvy enough, school-age children are savvy enough to request their allowance in a form that allows for spending in the easiest way possible. Mm. And uh, I'm sorry to say, you know, ease for parents aside, this really is not helpful to the kids or the parents in the long run. Why? Because um, I understand that that parents might be thinking to themselves, okay, online banking and digital payment systems, they're the way of the world. That's observable. What is also observable 
um, and I, you know, I'm in a position to observe this quite closely, is that school-age children very often, you know, I'll say most of the time, have no idea how much money is actually required to make a purchase, nor how much they're likely to use or appreciate an item or experience before they buy it. And in-game purchases of virt, virtual merchandise, worsens this dynamic, does not improve it in any way, shape, or form. And certainly this is consistent with what all the literature says about using a credit card versus paying for ca with cash. A credit card anesthetizes the pain, I'm sure, in much the same way as spending a virtual currency does. Well, you know, exactly, Bruce. Spending is so frictionless today. You know, when you and I were growing up, uh, if we went into a store and something was $10 and we had $5, we went home empty handed because mm. you couldn't text your mom. She couldn't Venmo you. You couldn't <laughs> use Apple Pay. Like there was there was none of this, right? Shoplifting so, was frowned upon. Shoplifting was frowned upon. And, and what's happening is children are really confusing payment methods, how you pay for something with how they're funded which is by working at a job to earn wages. You know, I often ask kids, where does money come from? And depending upon their age and stage, we get some, you know, really fantastical answers. Now, the point of that question is to guide them back to the correct response, which because they're not yet adult income earners is that money comes from their parents working hard to earn it. Hmm. And then we continue. But, you know, if you if you look at Robux, okay, it's an in-game purchased in-game currency purchased at a steep discount to the face value. So what I mean here is that for say example, 30 actual dollars, you can purchase something like $2,400 worth of Robux. So, you know, this only serves to ex ass exacerbate this illusion of a magical world mm. where, it, you know, it's just not that hard to spend less than you, less than you make. You are grounded in reality, that it characterizes your work. And the reality is people want, kids want to be able to buy in this way and spend their, even if their allowance is delivered in a, on a piece of paper in a $5 bill, they may want to convert that into Robux. How do you do that in the best possible way, knowing that this is how kids sometimes want to spend their money? Okay, I, I know it takes more time, but it doesn't take that much time. And all parents that I come across want to help their children develop productive money personalities. The, the technical description is money scripts. Um, exploring Vlad Klontz's work on money scripts is, is super worthwhile, but I call them money personalities just to make it more accessible for parents and kids. So in order to do that, they really need to create circumstances under which spending in-game currency is only a side dish to earning and spending allowance versus the main course. Does that mean that a kid should be encouraged to spend some of their physical allowance uh, at the 7-Eleven? Well, I, I mean, I always prefer spending actual dollars on actual stuff because I, I just think that the way to get better at real life is to practice real life. I know, though, that kids want Robux. I had a girl in workshop yesterday who shared that she received a stuffed unicorn for her birthday and she'd really wanted Robux. So if you're going to give them Robux, there needs to be a conversation exploring the difference between the purchasing power of actual dollars and the purchasing power of these in-game currencies and how that difference is actually magnified 
by the fact that in-game accessory prices also have no reality on, on planet Earth. When you think about the family highlighted in that article, they had 10 and 12-year-old daughters who purchased, I think it was a Gucci jacket and a, and a Louis Vuitton purse for their avatars for something like like five Robux. So of course, you know, that that's not that's not real life, right? right? I mean, a Louis Vuitton purse in real life, not even a fancy one, costs two thousand dollars, which for most of today's school age children represents their entire take-home pay for mm. one month when they first become adult. So, so what you're pointing to is there's two layers here. One is the distortion of what a Gucci product costs on uh, Roblox versus in the real world. And second, the disconnect between the piece of paper that someone earned by shoveling a driveway and the way that that money is spent online. Is that an accurate characterization? Y yes, we really, we, we need to work hard to make things as tangible for kids as possible. I think one of the reasons that parents struggle with, well, you know, how bad really is it? One of the parents in the article says, well, what's the difference between letting him buy a skin for his avatar in Fortnite and a toy? You know, the thing is toys, toys break. I mean, you just, you can become dissatisfied with a skin, but again, it's just to me, it's not really I, I guess at a minimum, let's not call it helping them get better with money. Let's mm -hmm. just call it giving them a toy then. Right. This idea that, you know, they're saying that making these in-game purchases is a way to develop any sort of financial skill, I just don't buy it. Karen, just before we go here, where we originally connected was on uh, your DIMS score. Tell people where they can find it and the essence of how it works. Okay, well, they can find uh, everything they need to know at giftingsense.org. There's a teacher tab where we've given teachers everywhere everything they need to conduct their own workshop on thinking before buying for their own students in their own classroom. Parents, though, are also fully capable of teaching their kids how to think before they buy. Um, I'm forever telling parents, not only dentists teach their kids to brush their teeth, mm. Um, and all they have to do is go to the website and click on get your DIM score now. DIMS stands for Does It Make Sense Score. It's a number between one and 10 that's automatically generated when kids answer questions on a digital worksheet about a possible purchase. And it helps them understand A, how much money is actually required to make the purchase, and B, how much they're likely to really um, use or appreciate an item or experience before they buy it. What we observe every week is that when we give kids a tool that lets them quickly, but not arbitrarily, assess how much money's involved and whether or not they'll use or appreciate something, guess what? They make really good decisions, what? but they need the tool. Yes, <laughs> they do. They stop themselves. You know, February's coming. You watch. We're going to be calculating the DIM score for Super Bowl tickets until yeah. the cows come home. Oh, Halfway God. through, they want to stop because right. the minute they understand that this is a thousands of dollar exercise going to the Super Bowl, yeah. They already know it doesn't make sense, right. but they needed those questions to be asked and answered to come to that determination. Genius. Karen, thank you for joining us today. My absolute pleasure, Bruce. Keep up the good work. Karen Holland's the founder of Gifting Sense at giftingsense.org. And she was here to talk about some of the dynamics that are so hard for parents to navigate these days, including Roblox and Robux, digital currencies, in-game purchases. <gasps> Hi, it's me, your dad. 
Look, we need to talk. This isn't working. The missed payments, the collection calls, and all those sleepless nights. We need nonprofit debt counseling, and I found the perfect place. Credit Canada Debt Solutions. They're non-judgmental, 100% confidential. They'll negotiate with creditors and even stop interest. Don't you want to rebuild your credit? You deserve better. Break up with debt. Visit creditcanada.com. Coming up later, marketing professor Grant Donnelly is here to tell us about repayment by purchase, an idea that may be able to help you reduce credit card debt. But first, Morgan Roberts from RaidHub.ca shares about how getting into a car accident might impact your insurance rates and what you can do about it. Missed an episode of Moolala? You can head on over to moolala.ca to listen to past episodes. You can search by guest name, by topic. You can watch full episodes. You can also go to the podcast platform, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Prime, Apple, wherever else you listen to podcasts. Download the full show, write a review, even subscribe to the next episode so it uh, arrives on your device without you having to do a thing. You're listening to Moolala, Money Made Simple, with Bruce Sellery on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. If you spend any time in a car, an accident can happen. They do happen. They happen all the time. Even if it's a minor fender bender, it can have an impact on your insurance rates. So what can you do to be better prepared should you be involved in a car accident? We hope this is news you never need to use, but it will provide you some comfort um, just to have some context on this topic. Morgan Roberts is the insurance sales director at ratehub.ca. She joins us from Curtis, Ontario to talk about claims and what to do. Hello there. Hi, how are you? The caveat, auto insurance is provincial. Things can differ based on where you live. Um, that said, what should Canadians do as they pull their car over to the side of the road, assuming it's an accident that isn't life or death? Yeah, that, that's kind of a key there. If the car is movable, attempt to move out of harm's way. So if you're in the middle of the road, attempt to get to the side or into a close parking lot. Um, if it is, if there are major injuries, stuff like that, of course, don't move the car, just call 911 right away. But if you can move the car and no one's injured that you can see, get photos of the car, talk to the other person, get their insurance information, driver's license number, uh, their vehicle plate number, and any details of the accident you can remember. It's always best to attempt to write them down so that you remember right as it's happened um, what you were doing, if you were moving or not moving, um, just any details you can remember who was in the car, that kind of stuff. What advice do you have for people about the emotional dynamic? So I have been in two accidents, one which I caused and one which was caused by another. Both of them were very upsetting, but for obviously for different reasons. What, what advice do you have on navigating that part of it? That's the hard part. I, to be honest with you, I was in an accident last year and I was shocked how overwhelmed I got as well with the emotion. Mm. Your best bet is to just stop, take a few breaths and realize 
as long as no one's hurt, th this is going to be okay. Insurance will fix it. Everything is going to be fine in the end. You just have to take a minute and calm down. There's no point in yelling at the person that caused the accident or if you're the person. There's no, there's no point in playing the blame game and just making people more upset. It's already high stress, high emotional time. Just try to keep calm and realize that insurance will help you out of this, but not to escalate. How would you recommend people think about the difference between at fault and no fault it, from an insurance perspective? I know from a legal perspective, it's different because in my case, that second accident, someone ran a red light and I actually went to their court appearance where they were let off from running this red light and it made my blood boil. I still have the paperwork. It was probably 20 years ago that it happened and I was insane about it, even though I got you know, coverage for the car that they totaled. But tell us about that distinction. And I know there's some regional nuances, but how 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 do you think about it today? Yeah, the no-fault insurance, it just means that you'll deal with your own car insurance company for claims and navigating through that process. The no-fault, uh, it's when a reimbursement for any loss comes from your insurance company instead of if me and you get into an accident, your company doesn't pay for me and my company doesn't pay for you. I see. And uh, I know that some insurers have like collision centers. H how does that work? Is that common? Well, you just go to the collision reporting center in your city. Okay. Which is not run by an insurance company. It's run by what? The police? I think it's run by, I'm not a hundred percent sure. So, but I think it's run by police. So you just go to the collision reporting center, tell them what happened. They'll take photos of your car and they'll fill out a report for you. Gotcha. And you have this car, you call your insurance company, some call center person who's used to dealing with these calls all the time will collect a whole bunch of information. Um, how long do these claims tend to, to um, take to process? I can't really give a timeline on how long they take to process. If you call your broker, we get on it right away. So we start working with the insurance company as soon as possible to get on it so that we can get your claim closed as soon as possible. There are different factors. Like um, if you're looking, like when the car has to be fixed, it depends on how long it takes parts to get in, that kind of stuff. But the adjuster will get in contact with you as soon as possible. Everything how moves would, quickly. How would you manage people's expectations for what that coverage will, uh, will include? Because I know when it happened to me, uh, I had a relatively new to me car and I was still out at least five grand based on, you know, the age and stage and whatever. And I had no idea. I'd never been in that situation before. If they offer you a payout, um, it's usually on the blue book value. If it is a brand new car, though, when you do buy insurance, if you buy a brand new car or lease a brand new car, you should make sure that you have a waiver of depreciation on there. That will hold the value of your vehicle for however long the waiver is good. It depends on which insurance company you're with. But you can always try talking to them when they give you that number as well to uh to say if it's enough or not enough, why it's not enough, and have that conversation with the adjuster. When we talk about any insurance product, there's like a base level, and then there can be other features. You know, with home insurance, you're talking about here's the value of my contents and all those sorts of things. What are some of the variables as someone is pricing insurance and going through that path with the going down that path with a broker that they should be aware of with either additional things they can add on or things that would um, make the coverage more or less expensive. 
Well, you can always add on. So what you have to have is liability. So that is what you need to drive a car in Ontario. Okay. Then if you are leasing or financing, you do need collision and comprehensive. I also do recommend collision and comprehensive to anybody who, if, if your car is stolen tomorrow and you don't have comprehensive on it, no one's going to fix, like no one's going to replace your car. That's what that coverage does. Mm. So you'd have to be okay with waking up tomorrow and the car being gone and you being financially okay to repurchase a car as well. So you have to look at your financial status and how much you use the car as well. Um, you can always add on accident forgiveness. So if you are in an at-fault accident, it protects your driving record. I always recommend if you qualify for that to have that added on to your policy. So you can add that on. You can also add on use of a rental vehicle. There, there's all sorts of variables. If you lease your finance, there's less variables because you have to have some coverages on it. But it's always best to talk to your broker to go over all the different coverages that are available and different situations that you might be in that would require different coverages. One last question before we go. I'm one of those drive it into the ground people. <laughs> so I will have the car. I drove my grandmother's 1968 Valiant for years, then my mom's Tercel. I have had new cars, but I literally think about it. I'm going to drive them till their very, very last breath. Yeah. At what point should people take off the collision coverage? Like at what point is the cost benefit um, make less sense? Well, you'd have to look at your deductible. So there's a few variables with that. You have to look at your deductible to see if your deductible is a thousand and you know that that car is only worth $300 now, <laughs> it's probably not worth it. Um, I don't like to give a year. Like I don't like to say if the car is 10 years old or 15 year olds, years old, I have a 10 year old car right now. I keep collision and comprehensive on it because if I got into an at-fault accident, I would need my car replaced. Um, I, I'm not in the market to buy a new car. So I look at it that way. My car is worth more than my deductible. So as long as you're comfortable paying the deductible, but you also become, if you take it off, it is a gamble. Mm. You might not have a car tomorrow if you get into an accident. 10 year old car. It's just getting started. Just getting warmed up. It's just yeah. knowing the roads yeah. 10 years. Come on. It's still pretty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they haven't changed the model design too on my road. No, it gets so me to A and B. Yeah. yeah. Morgan, thank you so much for your time today. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Morgan Roberts is the insurance sales director at ratehub.ca. Uh, she was here to talk about what happens if heaven forbid you ever get in a car accident and some things to think about as you review your insurance policy. Stay with us coming up, a new way to reduce credit card debt. It's called repayment by purchase. One of the authors of that study, Grant Donnelly, will be here to take us through it. I am the Money Columnist for CBC Radio. So every Wednesday afternoon, we dig into a topic relevant to you in your financial life. Tune in to CBC across the country. We'll uh, have a good conversation about what's going on that particular week. You're listening to Moolah Law, Money Made Simple with Bruce Sellery on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. It can be so daunting to look at the total on your credit card bill or more likely bills because a lot of people have more than one credit card. So if that's tough, actually paying off that bill can be brutal. And there is a ton of work to uh, looking at how 
people can make that an easier task. But some new research crossed our desk with an approach called repayment by purchase. And we're going to talk to one of the authors of the study on this new method. Grant Donnelly is an assistant professor of marketing at Ohio State University's Fisher College of Business. He joins us now to talk about this method. Hello there. Hi, thanks so much for having me. What is repayment by purchase? What do you mean? Uh, what we mean is when allocating a payment towards your credit card bill, you can actually allocate it towards specific purchases rather than say the total balance of your bill. So if I was going to pay like under a traditional way of payment, I would pay $100 towards my bill. And under repayment by purchase, let's just say I had a $50 pair of shoes um, and a $50 dinner out, um, I could select both of those items and and pay that amount. So by essence, crossing those two items off of my to-do list in some extent. And uh, we're going to come back to how this actually works, but I want first to have you take us through some of the results uh, that you found when people did repay by purchase. They paid back more. They do. Yeah, it does increase um, repayment. So that was kind of a promising outcome. Uh, we had, well, in investigating this question, we partnered with Commonwealth Bank of Australia. So we got to look at repayment behavior over a few months. And we saw that repayment increased such that people paid more for a few months of the experiment. And those effects did seem to die off though after some time. And then in some more controlled lab experiments um, where we give people hypothetical bills or kind of use their own bills to make decisions with, we see um, consistent effects around paying more. By how much? Roughly about 16% more people are paying towards their bill. Um, Pretty dramatic in terms of reducing the carry of that credit card debt over time. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, with Commonwealth Bank, Bank of Australia, they also have a indicator of someone's financial health. And mm -hmm. so after the experiment, um, people's financial health increased such that it made them more qualified for home loans and other types mm -hmm. of financial services that could benefit them. Mm -hmm. What are the hypotheses on why this was so? Our primary hypothesis was that what um, credit cards are pretty good at doing is they uh, make all of your purchasing behaviors a little bit more vague. So they separate, you know, the payment from all that enjoyable time you get to buy your items, and then they clump them all together in a big long list or a bill. And so what that does is it draws your attention towards the total balance that you owe rather than reminding you of all of the things that you got. So repayment by purchase, in essence, kind of brings you back to remembering all of those things that you might have forgotten over the course of the billing cycle. And then really what it does is by paying off a specific item, not only are you aware of what you're paying towards, it gives you kind of a sense of meaning and accomplishment. So you're, you feel like you're um, making progress towards a goal that could be very overwhelming. What did so you notice? Uh, what did you notice about the category of things that people paid off? So, if they were to, you know, if we look at the uh, the pie chart of what's in that credit card bill, it's food, it's groceries, it's entertainment, it's whatever. What did they tend to want to pay off more when given that choice? I love this question. So, under balance repayment, traditional repayment, uh, people generally wish to repay things that aren't giving them future benefit, like a vacation that they already experienced, rather than, say, a home appliance that they might still be getting benefit from. With repayment by purchase, we actually saw that prioritization of repayment actually was focused on smaller items, this, like separate of like what type of category they were in. And really, I think why this occurs is because the proportional 
kind of change of your bill increases the more items you re remove. And so people are sensitive to making that bill as small as, as small as possible. So that means that I would pay off like 10, $10 items before I'd pay off one $100 item. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I think if I were to do it, I'd be trying to pay off the thing I feel guiltiest about. Because really? it would somehow absolve me of guilt, of wrong. Oh, because you could at least take care of that. Yeah. 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 I, and I, no I, one would know. No one would call my mother and say, can you believe he spent a hundred dollars on shoes he does not need? Yeah. Yeah. I have that opposite prediction, actually, that I, I would want to pay off food or my necessities because I would feel bad feeling like I couldn't pay for like my day to day life. How but, did it how did it actually work? So your credit card bill arrives, you look at all the transactions. Right now it's, you know, you go online and you pay that dollar amount. In your study, how did the bank make it possible for people to repay by purchase? How hard is that? Yeah, it was very difficult. Commonwealth Bank of Australia was amazing to to partner with as they had to design a completely different consumer experience <laughs> than what their general operating practices were. So uh, we intervened with people through a mobile application where they would make payments and um, we couldn't force people into the, you know, paying towards items. So we just presented some customers with this ability to make payments towards items. And at least in this study, we, um, for simplicity, we just had to make it purchase categories. So rather than like your pair of shoes, it would just be clothing mm -hmm. as a broader category. Turns out that's still as effective. You know, people want to eliminate more categories of items rather than just specific items. Um, and so people would select the items they wish to repay. The app was really great such that it would also give you a sense of accomplishment, like the item would explode or the category of items would explode when you paid them off in full. Um, and if you made a partial payment towards it, it would update that balance in real time. So it kind of gave this sense of accomplishment right away. And then people would approve their payment once that was completed. and they um, often what happened too with this intervention is people would log back into their credit card statement multiple times throughout the month, um, in part because they can kind of piecemeal pay towards um, their bill and watch it go down. This was this was research for you and for the financial institution. What have they decided? Are they rolling this out? Is this taking Australia by storm? Is it moving to the U.S. tomorrow? Uh, no. Uh, so um, there are a number of uh, repayment strategies that different tech creditors have that are consistent with this idea. So American Express has the Pay It Planet card, which allows you to make kind of payment uh, plans based on if you buy a large item that's over, say, $1,000, you could say, I'm going to make three payments of, you know, $250, four payments of $250 or whatnot. But Commonwealth Bank of Australia did not continue on with this intervention. There was a few reasons, I think. One is there was actually relatively low uptake. So People are, or in our in our research, we found that people are generally um, interested in cards that offer this type of option for them. It gives them a greater sense of control, kind of more sense of empowerment. But actually, people using it is another kind of outcome. So it seems to be good at attracting customers. Hmm. Um, it doesn't seem to be actually that good in practice. One reason why is because it's a lot more work to pay off your bill. Like while it could be entertaining and satisfying for some consumers. For people who pay their bills in full each month, it doesn't really appeal to them. And then two, for those who also can't pay their bill in full but want to, it also brings greater attention to them, their inability to do that, which kind of can be disappointing. Given that, the, the hooray, these are great results, and the boo, it's not um, taken on like wildfire, what do you believe uh, is the reapplication of this research in the market? 
I think that the American Express Pay It Planet card is actually quite, um, takes a lot of these insights and utilizes them in a successful way. So the pay it option of their plan allows people to pay off smaller items. And I think they cap that at items under $100. And the planet option is something we didn't study, but this is for larger items where they can where they can set a payment plan of how long that they'll have it. It's almost like putting something on layaway on your credit card. Mm. Um, and so this allows people kind of two different strategies, but also offers opportunities for creditors to um, ultimately maintain some of their revenue through interest charges because the, the pay it plan, you know, satisfies people maintaining a balance, which yeah. is the primary source of income for creditors. So yeah, yeah it's one I of think, those real contradictions in the marketplace is the it's not actually in their vested interest to have people not carry an outstanding balance. Exactly. So that's the tension that these, you know, repayment by purchase plans kind of have. They're good at attracting customers. Um, it somewhat benefits the, the creditors when uh, these users don't actually utilize these um, payment strategies. Mm. But it also could ultimately um, help people reduce debt and um, reduce their profitability. Really interesting stuff. Grant, thanks for your time today. Thank you. I had so much fun talking to you. Grant Donnelly, Assistant Professor of Marketing at Ohio State University's Fisher College of Business. And he was here to talk about this idea called repayment by purchase. And even if your institution doesn't offer it, here's an idea. Look at that credit card. Pay the minimum payment, of course, as you always do. And then choose one specific thing. Maybe it's a dinner out. Maybe it is that pair of shoes. And make an incremental payment that, in your mind at least, is uh, repaying that particular purchase. That's it for our show today. A thank you to our sponsors, Credit Canada, the first and longest standing nonprofit credit counseling agency in the country. To get in touch with us, with your comments, your questions, your story ideas, your feedback, your whatever, our email address is ask at moolala.ca. Ask at moolala.ca. You can subscribe to our newsletter at moolala.ca. Uh, subscribe to the podcast on any of the podcast platforms out there. On social media, I'm at Bruce Celery on Twitter, Bruce Celery Moolala on Facebook. Thank you for listening and have a great day. <laughs>